Welcome to Grace on the Go. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. This episode is a sermon from Christ the King Sunday given by Pastor Chris Simmons called A Name Above Every Name. The scripture passage highlighted for today's sermon comes from the book of Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, God's grace, mercy, and peace are yours through his Son, Jesus Christ. As we begin today, you have your bulletin, or you can follow up here. We have kind of just four points, four outlines. It's funny, in the uh, 11 o'clock ones, I think the blanks are filled in for you. So you have all the answers um, if you need to cut out and go home early. But, I'm, I'm, but don't. There's, there's, a lot more in between, there's a lot more in between the points that we want, we want to fill in for you as we get started today. And as we start, we mentioned it's Christ the King Sunday. It's what we call a festival day. Festival day, we kind of celebrate you know, particular parts, not just of Christ. Maybe you hear festival days often associated with saints and things like that. But today we kind of celebrate Christ who is our king and our ruler. And as we begin, we kind of have our first point right away. What does it mean to be king of the castle? Anyone familiar with this phrase? What does it mean to be king of the castle? I often refer to a home improvement with uh, Tim Allen and Tim the Toolman Taylor. You know, he's like, coming, I'm king of the castle. <laughs> that kind of stuff, that like masculine ideas. I rule over my household. I rule over my wife. I rule over my children. I'm the one in charge. But in kind of in fact, you watch the sitcom, you realize he's He's not, right? He's not certainly the one that's in charge. But that's the idea that we have. King of the castle, ruler of my life. Maybe it's the way that I, I rule over my life in my own personal kingdom, my household. Maybe it's my work. Maybe I think I'm king of the castle at work. But it's kind of this, this very prideful type of attitude that goes along with it. And as we look at that, we, we get this idea of being king of the castle or king of my life or, or ruler amongst other people. We look to the the, the modern-day 21st century philosopher Simba from The Lion King, as, um, from his, his, his epic work um, called I Just Can't Wait to Be King, where Simba says, no, when he's king, no one's saying do this, no one's saying be there, no one's saying stop that, no one's saying see here, I'll be free to run around all day, free to do it all my way. That's what we think it means to be king of the castle. Do all things my way, the way I want to, when I want to. And it's funny, we get this idea that, that the more that we're king of the castle, the more power that we have, the less responsibility we should have. That the closer I am to ruling my life, that the less effort that it should cost me. We strive for this idea of feeling like, you know, if I'm king of the castle, I deserve to be treated the way that I want to be treated. And I deserve, if I'm king of the castle, to do the things that I want to do. I deserve to be treated like a king or a queen when I'm the ruler of my life. And when I'm king of the castle, I want to be the Burger King. I want to have it my way. I want to have it my way because that's what I deserve. That's what I ordered. And as I tell you all that because this idea of what it means to be king of the castle and ruler of my life, what it means with this inverse idea that we kind of talked about before, Pastor Dringer highlighted, of how the, the idea of kingship has been flipped, that didn't just happen from the 21st century philosopher Simba. This actually happened way back, um, way, way back. It's kind of been always the common idea of what it meant to be a king, right? To be ruler of all, to be the one dominating, that everyone bows at my feet. Um, 
to get a little context, this is from Philippians chapter 2. And that's a whole letter that Paul's writing to a church, a church of Philippi. To give you an idea of what the context of it all, uh, Philippi was a, a Roman colony in Greece. And the way that the Romans liked to populate their colonies is, um, especially this one in Philippi, it kind of had special treatment. They would take their Roman soldiers, the veterans, from their legions, and once they've retired, they would pick them up and they would place them in Philippi. Hey, you know, you, you've earned a vacation. Great job. You've served me well. You can go to Philippi, this beautiful place. Well, eventually, in Greece, uh, Philippi became 40% Roman and 60% Greek. It's a big mix. And what was really neat about um, Philippi, it was called Little Rome. Because there, in, out of many colonies, this one had special privileges. If you were born in Philippi, you got Roman citizenship. Mm, I know. And some of you might be going, okay. You know, but it's, it's this idea you got these rights kind of placed above all other people. You were a step up if you were born in Philippi. You were on equal terms with those that were born in Rome. And that's a great thing. So we have this culture that has a bunch of Roman soldiers that are loyal to Caesar. And we have this Greek, Greco-Roman culture where there's a big mix of gods and, and, and leaders and things like that and philosophy. But there was one thing that was very important that everyone believed. Who was king of the castle? Caesar. Caesar, the emperor. He was always king of the castle, right? And in the same idea, these beliefs, they, he was also a, a god, he was someone that you worshipped. You worshipped Caesar. So not only was he king, he was also your God. So Paul's writing a letter to people who believe our, our king and God is Caesar. And here's another fascinating thing. In Philippi, there were no Jewish synagogues, which means there were less than 10 Jews in all of Philippi. So they don't even have like the Old Testament stuff to build off of. It's this new culture, new people to hear about this Jesus guy. It's great. But what do you mean Jesus is king and ruler of my life? Well, what I think a king and ruler of my life is what I see in Caesar and the emperor. What do you mean there's something different? So this whole section that Paul's highlighting right now, he's saying, hey, I know what you think a king is, but we got to take it and we got to flip it and talk about who Christ really is. And here's the, the important part. Why he has to flip that and why he has to make it so clear is uh, as a culture, we often model ourselves based off of leadership. So leadership, even at that time, I mean, we, we could talk about the culture, not just in Philippi, but in Corinth and things like that. Um, the, the emperor and Caesar, they dictated not just morals, but also virtue. What was good and, and what was right. And you may say, oh man, I'm glad that doesn't happen today. <laughs> just an example for you, right? There's this great book, it's called Stranger World. Carl S. Truman writes about kind of, how did we get to where we are today in our, in our society and culture? And one reference that he makes that I think is really interesting has to do with, like, presidents. Presidents um, over, over, you know, the United States, of course, but also, like, national leaders. And he uses Richard Nixon and the Watergate scandal. So before Richard Nixon and the Watergate scandal, we had this picture of what the president should be. He should be an upstanding, right, moral man, and there should be no blemish on his character or anything like that. And he should never swear. If you go before Richard Nixon, you don't see presidents in speeches or, or, or public appearances ever swearing or using profanity or language like that. Well, the Watergate scandal happened where they get the tapes, where there are recordings of the president at the time, Richard Nixon, swearing and using profanity. And people are appalled. What do you mean our president would do this? This is awful. No way a president should ever speak that way. But how's that different today? All of a sudden, the leader of a culture, the leader over um, an entire nation, one instance all of a sudden changes to now today, well, you know, if, if the, the president or, or a political leader doesn't use, like, foul language, then he's just a phony. 
Profanity just shows that he's really authentic and that this leader is, is really, you know, down to earth with us. Well, hold on. Something happened when a leader of a nation all of a sudden had different moral and, and virtuistic implications where something that was bad now became good and something that was good is, is, is now bad. It may seem so minor, but you see how just one instance Change the morality and the virtue of an entire nation. And I know that, that we're, we're different. We have Christ our King, which we'll talk about, and you'll say, that's not me. But you can kind of see, overall in general, how things in public opinion have shifted based off of leadership. We often model ourselves based off of our leaders. And that takes us straight into our next point, which is point number two. Having a kingly attitude, or having, yeah, having the kingly attitude. Right over there. As we begin here. We read Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value, your others, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Hold on to that last part. In your relationship with others, have the same mindset as Christ. Throughout your history, just, you know, life in general, who are the leaders that you remember? Right? Maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's a boss, maybe it's someone that you work for. Just take a moment to step out of the sermon and just recall the leaders in your life that really meant something important to you. And in case you don't, don't worry, I got four I'm going to tell you about, and you can borrow one of mine. Right? The first one, my father-in-law, his name is Dennis. Awesome guy. And I'll never forget when it was one of the, maybe the second time that we kind of ever met. Um, I fly, I live in Chicago, live in California, so we go there to visit. Um, Samantha and I both lived in Chicago, so we came, we came together. Well, Samantha and her, she's the oldest of three. She, her three sisters were there at the table, her mom and dad and me. And just like siblings do, they got into a fight. Right? I get, I get a fight with my siblings too. That's just what happens. And, and we were much younger then. Gosh, we've been married over 10 years, so this is like 13 years ago. Right? And so we're over there, and they're all fighting. Now, has this ever been you? You're dating someone, whether you're, you're, you're the boyfriend of a girlfriend or the girlfriend of a boyfriend, and you're there, and, and either the siblings get in a fight or they're in a fight with their parents in front of their parents. And you go, what do I do? Okay, because here are all the options. I could take the side of my girlfriend and be like, look, I'm standing up for my girlfriend. i got to be on her side. But this is my first impression with their sisters. I'll never get another one. So I'm going to ruin it, but I'll be on her side. And who knows what mom and dad are thinking over there. Or maybe I should side with the sisters. So then like, hey, you know what? I'm on your side. Aren't I a cool almost brother-in-law? I can repair that relationship. You know, I'm going to see her a few more times after this. I can fix that later. Maybe I should just side with them, right? And I'm like, no, I'm getting a lot of signals. This has already happened. <laughs> Don't do it, Chris. And um, so I'll tell you, I didn't do that either. I'm sitting literally on the opposite side of the table, and I look, I look at one side, I look at the other side, and the argument's going, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to look at her dad and see what he's doing. And I look across the table, sitting at the head of the table, and I look up to him, and he's just sitting there, <laughs> just smiling. And I'm like, hmm, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'll have to watch how maybe this will devolve into something. That, he smiled the whole time. And the reason he smiled the whole time is his, 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 you know, his youngest daughter lived with him. The next one up, Ashley, she lived in Iowa, right? So she, she came to town as well. We came to town as well from Chicago. This is the first time in however many years he had everyone sitting at the same dining room table together. 
And he just sat there with immense patience and joy and smiled. And I'll tell you what, when I looked at him, I went, in that moment, I said, I need to learn to love like that guy does. In that moment, I need to learn to love like he does. I want to build my kingdom, my life, and I want to base it off of that. I want to be just like him. I want to love the way that he does. So that was one. Right. Number two, uh, I was in Chicago a couple times recently, and uh, I go there. That's where we worked. I, so my wife and I used to teach ballroom dance there, and I saw our ballroom dance uh, studio owner. We went and we visited with him. His name is Bill, and he knew me right, right when we got married, started working for him. So brand new newlywed, like, you know, day two, three, um, I'm there hanging out with him. And when we would meet individually one-on-one in the dance business, he would talk about, okay, so how are your students doing? How, how are sales going? How are you developing? How, how is your personal dancing going? Great. And he would always end with this, how's your marriage going? And what would be your answer to your boss? Great. <laughs> great. Everything is good. Everything is great. And he says, oh, okay. Now tell me how it's really going. And I'm like, oh. Well, <laughs> since you've asked, and I'll confess to you, you know, being a newlywed, all the problems were me, right? And I'm like, man, this is how I'm really feeling. This is how it's going. And what I learned in that moment, every time he asked me that was this, was what it meant to, you know, that your, your, your business and your personal aren't always separate, right? Your business and your personal often go like this. The way that you feel often affects the way that you act. The way that you conduct business or the way that you conduct business often affects the way that you are personally. And I'm like, man... You know, I, I need to love my wife a little bit better. And he taught me especially how to invest in her just in the moment and how he invested in me in that moment, putting my needs above what business was. So that was number two. Number three, um, I, while I was in my seminary experience, we, ha- we take classes, homiletics, homiletics one, homiletics two. They teach you the art of preaching. And um, homiletics two comes about, and I'm sitting there in class, and you have to turn in these sermons. I write this sermon. I turn it in. And he gives it back to me. He's like, Chris, I don't know what to tell you. This, this sermon's like 90 minutes long, <laughs> like the one I'm doing today. I didn't learn anything. No. He's like, it's 90 minutes long. You got like three sermons of material crammed into one. And I'm like, I know. I just didn't know what, this, what I wanted to say, what I wanted to do. How was I going to do it? Gives it back to me. I go back to my dorm room because I would go from Twin Falls to Irvine. So we're based in Irvine. I'm typing stuff. I'm like, oh, I can't get it. So I go out and I go for a run. Well, he's in from out of town too, you know, so he has a dorm room. And he sees me out for a run while, he, while he's exercising. He goes, um, hey, Chris, what are you doing? I'm like, you know, I'm just trying to shake this off. I can't. I can't think. I, I, don't, I don't know what I was doing with that sermon. I still don't even know where to go with it. And he says, well, why don't you come back to my room? So I went back to, him, to his dorm room, and for two hours, he taught me a whole other lesson. He's, we sat there and talked. He's like, you know, here are a couple other structures that are going to really help you with that. And I learned this in that moment. I wanted to base my kingdom off of that guy. Like I wanted to base it off of Bill. Like I wanted to base it off of my father-in-law, Dennis. I said, there's... There's never a moment where I say, you know what, to invest in you and, and to teach you something, we really need to schedule an appointment and come during my office hours. Holy Spirit strikes at any time, and your time to invest in people is always now. I want to base my kingdom off of that guy. I want to I grow, and I, I want to learn. I want my kingdom to look just like his. Last one being, I won't talk about him very much, but, but Pastor Jonathan Dinger. Right? I've been here a year. In my time in a year, you, you, you learn something very important. Watching him, it's like, hey, you don't lead with authority. You lead with influence and trust. It's about building relationships with people. And the other thing I learned is when there, there are conflicts going on and there are arguments, you never really look at the conflict. Look at the hearts of the people behind it. And man, I needed to hear that. Because I'm like, look at the hearts of the people that are in the argument. Because hearts are good. 
That's what Satan wants you to focus on, the thing in the middle, the issue, the conflict. Look at the hearts of the people. The people are good. So I'm like, I need to base my kingdom based off of that guy. I need to base my kingdom. I need to make that part of mine. So you kind of build these little makeshift kingdoms, right, based off all these leaders who are important to you. Now, here's the thing. Every single leader, I, I thank God they were all godly men that I'm talking about. That list was four people. I'll give you a clue. I know it was kind of long sharing four, but that's all of them. Those are all the ones I got. I can tell you this. That list is short. The list of what not to do <laughs> and how not to lead is a lot longer. I've had a lot more bad bosses. I've had a lot more people with bad authority. I had a lot more people who taught me what not to do more than what to do. The list of these four are very short. Why is that? It's very unique. And as we see it, it's in Christ as a king for people to put their need, your needs above their own, to serve humbly, to come before you. So you read those first few verses, and it's like, oh, man, I want to have the same mindset as Christ. I'm looking to people who in my life have built something very humble, built something that's focused on serving. If you think of the leaders in your life, I guarantee you the same thing, the ones who invested in you over their own personal investment, their own personal selfish ambitions, those are the ones you remember, right? The ones that took that extra time to invest that little bit in you with humility. We go to Matthew chapter 20. Jesus says this. Jesus called the disciples together and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must uh, great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for ransom of many. That's why Paul says, I want your mindset to be the same as Christ. Christ is the king that came and gave his life, not to be served, but to serve. That's the opposite mentality. We thought of what it meant to be a king, to rule over my life. And when you model your own personal kingdom, to have that kingly attitude, we model it. Even if it's those people that are in our life we get little pieces on, we're called to model it based off of Christ. To show the kind of humility that we learn from Jesus, who doesn't lord it over me. The one who deserves, if anything, to lord it all over me, isn't the one that lords it over me. In fact, he comes with that heart of service. It brings us to point number three over here. Point three is not about getting what you deserve, but giving up what you deserve. Quoting a much better uh, source than Simba. We're going to go back to Jesus. Uh, this is Luke chapter 18. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, and this being like a high priest at that time, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men who are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exhausted, or not exhausted, exalted. As we go into this, right, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
you don't have to raise your hand. You can raise an eyebrow if you want. Has anyone ever felt cheated out of something they deserved? Mm, mm, I know, right? They're like, where are you going with this one? <laughs> That's it. No. <laughs> right? Have you ever felt like you've been cheated out of something that you deserve? When Samantha and I were in the dance business, right, we had this Christmas showcase. This is the very last thing that we majorly did in, 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 our, in our dance studio. Because we're here and, and you sell a bunch of numbers, right? You sell numbers to your student. You teach all these extra lessons. You do all this choreography. And you, you essentially, they rent out a theater um, sometimes. And there's this big gala where people come for a show. And they come and watch. This one was at our studio, right? We set up all this pipe and drape, a stage. And we had 20 numbers for this showcase or a show that people would come and watch for Christmas. Well, I was doing w really well in the studio at that time, and I had 13 of the 20 numbers, right? So I'm like, oh, I'm working my tail off. I'm teaching all these lessons, trying to make choreography that's somehow different from the other 12 numbers that I'm doing at the same time. And then we have to come to performance night. And if you're in 13 out of 20 numbers, you don't really have time in between the numbers to do much or take a break. If, you, you can, if it's 13 out of 20, you can't exactly go every other. So I always say this. Have you ever tried to put on a shirt while you're sweaty? It's really unpleasant, right? You really don't like it. So we work, we work so hard through this whole thing, and finally, it's over. Oh, Christmas is coming, and we had a vacation planned. Oh, we couldn't wait. We're going to California, uh, where, her, where her parents live. We're going to do wine tasting. We, uh, her mom was going to cook for us. We were going to have to do dishes. You know, life was going to be good. We were going to kick up our feet, have a great time. It was at that time that we got a phone call, right before our trip, that, that Samantha's dad dad's father, who lived in Peoria, just south of us, was sick and, and might not make it. We then get a call a little bit later, and we pray for him because he, he's a great guy. We know we pray for him. We're like, Lord, do this. But there's a selfish part of me. I was also like, Lord, don't let him die. I want to go on vacation, right? I deserve this, I thought. Don't you know how hard I worked? Don't cheat me out of this. We get a phone call later that night that he passed, and we get a call from her parents. Hey, we're coming to Illinois. Because, because grandpa's not going to make it. So we, we stayed. And I'm like, man, and you're bummed for many reasons. You're sad because, you know, my wife just lost her grandfather, who was a, a wonderful guy. So you're sad for the loss in the morning and the time for the family. And there's a selfish part of you. It's like, but Lord, I deserved this vacation. You got to give it to me. I'm mentally exhausted. I'm physically tired. I wasn't supposed to be working anymore. So kind of in sadness, we stayed, we stayed back because we had all these things to handle. And we go to Christmas Eve service, which we weren't supposed to be at our church at that time. We were supposed to be in California. We come for Christmas Eve service that night. And the sermon was this. God brought you here for a reason today because he has something that you need to know. And I sat there and it was in that moment where I'm saying, Lord, I deserve this vacation. Aren't I supposed to have it? And I went... God wants me to go into pastoral ministry. And it was, it was, huh, it was in that moment. And I'm, I'm next to my wife, and I give her a hand squeeze. It's the whole reason why we're there. I just wanted what I deserved. <laughs> and, that's why, and we go and we sit in the car in silence. And there's complete silence. I'll never forget it. And I'm like, I think I've been called to go into pastoral ministry. And she's like, I know. <laughs> and you're just like, what do you mean you know? I, I, we've never talked about that. It's never been something on my mind or my heart ever. We have never discussed that. So there we are. And I'm like, Lord, I'm supposed to get what I deserve. And I don't deserve this. <laughs> Positive or negative, right? Um, but it's the reason that I am before you today. And it's just like, man, 
I just wanted what I thought I deserved, and I got, I got so much more than I, than I ever imagined. And there are two things that happen. One, when you feel like you're cheated out, what you deserve, you're cheated out of what you deserve, you never focus on the blessings that are there already. And number two, when, you, when you're focused so much on what you feel like you deserve, you don't really remember what you really do deserve. Right? That's what we call the law. It's when we say cheap grace. When you forget what we're saved from, sin, death, and the power of the devil. These are huge, important pieces. Don't throw them away. Like we're, That's what I deserve was death. But Christ the King came, did not equate himself even one with God, and gave his very own life for me so I didn't get what I deserve. And that's what you hear here in this next part that, that Paul writes, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That gospel reminder is this. That because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are given far more than we deserve. Because of the one and only true God and King that we have, he gave up everything that he deserved so we could have instead his abundant blessings. He gave up everything he deserved to take on the punishment that we deserved. He gave up everything he earned to pay off our debts so that we too could be resurrected with him. He took humanity upon himself not to meet his needs but to meet our needs. And as we model ourselves off of that king, instead of focusing on everything that we feel like that we deserve, let us give what we didn't deserve, the mercy given to us by Christ, his grace and his love. That brings us to our last point here. Use the salvation won for you. This is Philippians right at the end, chapter 2, well, the end of this section in the beginning, 9 through 13. Paul writes, therefore, exalted to the highest place, so Christ, therefore God exalted Christ to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that every name of Jesus, that, sorry, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to glorify God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in, the, in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you and will act, uh, works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. I love hearing that, work out your salvation, because I like to work out. I like to lift weights. We just finished yesterday this, this program here called 10W. We run it often where a bunch of guys get together and we work out together. And then we do a health tidbit. And while we're all sweaty, we do a Bible study. It's really cool. And uh, we, we get together. We'll probably do it again in January. It's, it's fun. And it's a great way to kind of not just introduce fitness, but be in a community that encourages one another. But as we did this, we actually referenced this verse here at the end. I would teach kind of the faith portion. And what went with that is to work out your salvation. The Greek word here, what it really means is to labor for. To achieve by effort. And it's like, hold on, right? This is where people will say in Philippians chapter 2, this verse right here, are you saying that I need to work for my salvation in order to earn it? Is that what Paul's saying? No, I know. I love how everyone does this for me. They're like, no. They're like, stop already before that's recorded and taken out of context. That's not true. You don't work for your salvation. You work from 
your salvation. Right? You get that section again right at the end. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God gives you this gift of salvation. Now, as we're, we're doing this exercise class, when we reference this, work out your salvation, um, if you're not familiar like with working out, let's say where you're working out and you get like 26-inch pythons, brother. That's Hulk Hogan, right? You got, you got these huge arms. And let's say you stop working out completely. Just dead stop. I'm not doing it anymore. All of a sudden, in just one day, you'll see a 15%, 15% decrease in size, muscular size. In two days, you'll see 25%. In two weeks, you'll see a 25% decrease in just your muscular strength. And it's like, hold on. Uh, All I did was stop working out. Why did I lose everything so much? It's this term called atrophy that you just kind of, if you don't, you know, it's where we get the concept. If you don't use use it, you lose it. Your salvation's not that way. It's been won for you by God, by Jesus Christ, who came as a king and humbled himself to serve you and give you this gift of salvation. Now, Paul say, work it out. With fear and trembling, he's saying, hey, Jesus gave you a gift. And you hear it in the parable of the talents, right? And that's a whole other reference. But what it's saying, it's like, you know, you don't take it and hide it in the ground. Jesus is saying, I've given you a great gift. Go out and use it. Don't put the chainsaw I gave you for Christmas in a box in the garage and never, never trim the tree. He's saying, I gave you a gift because I want you to use it. Now, that's not how you're saved. I've taken care of that. But I want you to do things for the sake of others. Because that's a king who humbles himself, who came to serve us, who came to give his very own body and his very own blood. And would you say, work out your salvation? I have to tell you this honestly, right? I'm, I'm in church. I'm forgiven. Um, he tells us, you know, talks about being humble, serving humbly. It takes a lot of work for me to be humble. Right? We hear the fruits of the Spirit that Paul talks about. Love, patience, um, uh, love, patience, uh, joy, kindness, gentleness. I need to work at those. Patience is me withholding myself. That takes effort, right? And it takes divine intervention. <laughs> That's why it's called a fruit of the Spirit. I need God to help me be kind because I'm not naturally, the Christ tree does not produce kind fruit. You know, it doesn't produce patient fruit or joyful fruit. I need the Lord. I need a king to help me, to, help, to, to not just dictate me, right? That's not what a king really does. But I want someone who, who comes and serves me, shows me how to walk, I want a king that I look at and say, all right, Lord, you've come before me and you've shown me the castle that that you've built for me, a paradise that I get to be a part of. Whatever little piece of this that that you want me to do and you want me to work alongside you with, I hope it's modeled after you. And I want it to be. I want to give grace as you've given grace. I want to give mercy as you've given mercy. As I model myself off to you, help me know there is no greater king than Jesus. Because who's the real king of the castle? Starts with the J, ends with the Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, right? He is truly the king of the castle. And he's shown us what it means to be that king that serves and loves others. So to him be that glory, now and forever. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.